Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA as a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry... We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. M-S-W Media. Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Thursday, July 6, 2023. Today, a magistrate judge has unsealed more of the Mar-a-Lago search warrant affidavit in response to media requests. Jack Smith issues more subpoenas to the Arizona Secretary of State. Former GOP congressman and 1-6 committee staffer Denver Riggleman is working with Hunter Biden. Trump lawyer Lynn Wood quits before he's disbarred. Ohio gets over 700,000 signatures to put choice on the ballot in 2024. After gutting affirmative action, Republicans are now going after minority scholarships. Exonerated Central Park Five member Yusuf Salam has won his city council primary in New York. The Department of Justice is seeking pretrial detention for the January Sixer who cased Obama's residence. And Republican members of Congress may have committed a felony. I'm your host, Allison Gill. I told you it was going to be a busy news day. It always is uh, the day after a long holiday weekend. Dana's out today. She'll be back tomorrow. Some brief information on the Jack Smith probe, all of which will be gone over with a fine tooth comb on the next episode of Jack with me and Andy McCabe. First, more of the Mar-a-Lago search warrant affidavit was unsealed. I've read it once. I've read it twice. 
I don't see anything new. You'll recall Trump demanded it was, he wanted this thing to be released last August after his house was searched by the FBI. And Garland called his bluff and released it. But they, but what they released back then was pretty heavily redacted. The new version out today has lifted some of those black bars just enough to reveal pretty much everything we read in the indictment. I don't really see anything else. If, if I do, I'm going to check it again because, you know, <laughs> if I don't see anything new and then I don't see anything new the second time, I feel like I need to go over it a third time. But it seems like everything that we were hoping would be in the indictment was in the indictment. Uh, it's a very thorough indictment. If you've read the indictment, I think you'll have it all. Now, I've put up a Twitter thread where I went through it page by page and line by line and have outlined in little red boxes what is new, newly released information. You can read that at my Twitter account, at Mueller, she wrote. It's just photos of this. I've got a link to it as well. You can see what is newly released and go over it yourself and decide if you've heard of it before. If you've been listening to the Jack podcast, though, you probably know it all already. Or if you've listened to like Ali Velshi, read the entire indictment. You'll be pretty much up to date. A lot still remains redacted, which is appropriate in an ongoing investigation. And we know it's an ongoing investigation because Jack Smith just sent out another round of subpoenas in the documents case. Like just now, like just recently from Miami, right? After the indictment, after the arraignment. Speaking of arraignment, Walt Nauta is supposed to be arraigned today, July 6th. We'll see if the magistrate judge, which is not Judge Aileen Cannon, by the way, we'll see if he lets him delay it again or if he holds his feet to the fire and appoints a public defender or just lets him pro hoc VJ himself or pro se himself, right? Like, because the, the court requires another lawyer to be part of the bar in the Southern District of Florida to sponsor his lawyer, Stanley Woodward. But the court can say, We're, we don't need it for arraignment, but get one for the trial. You know, <laughs> they can do that. I don't know if they will. I don't know if they'll get a public defender in there. Or they could force Walt Nauta to represent himself, pro se, right? Just be like, all right, you're your own representation just for this arraignment, for the purposes today. Any normal other human who did this would have a bench warrant out for their arrest. And we know he's doing this to help his buddy Trump delay because tomorrow, well, today I should say July 6th, is also the day that Trump's response is due to the Department of Justice's filing for the SEPA schedule and the and the trial being on December 11th and the new schedule for SEPA proceedings, right? That's the Confidential Information Procedures Act stuff, all the classified documents. That whole timeline, Jack Smith has already submitted it, says we're going to trial on December 11th. And Trump's reply to that filing is due today, July 6th. Well, it's been delayed now to July 10th now. Trump has till July 10th because of Walt Nauta not being able to be arraigned. Would that push that back further? Because July 14th is the SEPA hearing. It could push everything back if he's not arraigned today. So we'll find out how that goes. New subpoenas have been issued in the Arizona Secretary of State's office. These subpoenas come from Jack Smith. This time they're seeking information on lawsuits. The attorney general joined to overthrow the 2020 election. Arizona Secretary of State was also subpoenaed at the end of last year. Of course, we have a new Secretary of State now, our friend Adrian Fontes. Remember him? He's been on the show a couple of times. But the previous Secretary of State, but they, it's, they, they subpoenaed the office, not the person, just so you know. Like now I'm suing, you know, my former agency for wrongful termination when Trump 
and his administration investigated my podcast and removed me from my job. I'm I'm in litigation with the Secretary of Veterans Affairs. At the time, it was Wilkie. It was Trump's appointee. Now it's McDonough. And I feel bad. I'm like, I'm sorry, bro. It's not you. It's not personal. It's just the VA. The same thing here, right? Secretary of State was subpoenaed at the end of last year by Jack Smith. And Arizona electors were subpoenaed over a year ago by Merrick Garland, long time ago. Not Merrick Garland personally, but Jack Smith isn't sending out these subpoenas personally either. Just designating pre-Jack Smith, post-Jack Smith. And Trump lawyer and sanctioned member of the Kraken Strike Force has been granted retired status as an attorney, which avoids disbarment. The the retired status is irrevocable and permanent, so I'm calling it a self-disbarment. We're going to call it that. I know he wishes he could quit before he was fired, but fuck that guy. That's Linwood. And later in the show, yeah, we're, we still haven't even gotten to the hot notes yet, y'all. Later in the show, I'm going to be speaking with author Wesley Lowry. You've seen him on Deadline White House with Nicole Wallace. We're going to be talking about his new book, American White Lash, A Changing Nation and the Cost of Progress. You don't want to miss that interview. It's really, really enlightening. The book is incredible. It's available now. Get it now. It's called American White Lash. You won't be sorry. All right, everybody, time for the hot notes. Hot notes. All right, everybody, first up, let's talk about whether certain Republican House members have committed some crimes. Uh, I'm not talking about January 6th. I'm talking about this past couple of months. As you know, it is a felony to tamper with a witness, right? 1512 C1, remember? And uh, recently, the Republican chair of the House Ways and Means Committee and their staff, the staff there, the Republican staff on Ways and Means, interviewed a couple of IRS agents who they're calling whistleblowers. Namely, one of them is named Shapely. And they're interviewing him about the investigation into Hunter Biden, Now, that five-year-long investigation conducted by Trump appointee David Weiss resulted in a plea agreement for no jail time for two tax charges and and a gun charge. That has been the subject of right-wing conspiracy theories aimed at the Biden administration. All of this, well, you know... He he wanted he he wanted to charge people, but they wouldn't let me. I wanted to bring charges. I found more crimes and they wouldn't let me. This is all a bunch of bullshit. And they know it. And in a letter from Hunter Biden's lawyer, Abby Lowell, who, by the way, is also Jared Kushner's lawyer, Abby Lowell wrote to the Republican chair of the House Ways and Means Committee, Smith, Rep. Smith. Abby Lowell points out that their IRS whistleblower, one of them named Shapley, may have misinformed the committee and leaked private tax information, violating laws. Now, if House Republicans instructed or encouraged this whistleblower to give false testimony or leak private information, I call that witness tampering. I don't know if they have the evidence to bring it up to the level beyond a reasonable doubt to obtain and maintain a conviction on appeal. I'm not sure. But it should be investigated. If they instructed or encouraged these guys to give false testimony, to lie or leak information, I think that's investigatable. So then I wondered if that kind of shit would be protected by the speech or debate clause, because that's a big thing that they all, well, speech or debate clause, speech or debate clause is the part of the constitution that says, whatever I do that has to do with my legislative duties, I don't have to answer questions about it, let alone, I can't, you know, let alone be charged with a crime. You can't even ask me about it. But then I remembered D.C. District Court, where this took place, by the way, the the D.C. District, that court 
ruling, there was a ruling by Beryl Howland, then Boesberg, right, the chief judge of the district court, in the Pence speech or debate clause. You remember, Pence believed he didn't have to testify about anything related to January 6th because as an acting member of the legislature that day, as president of the Senate, I am shielded by the speech and debate clause. But the judge ruled that any conversation Pence had with Trump or members of Congress in which the other party asked him to act ultra virus or outside the law, anyone who spoke with it asked him to break the law or asked him to act outside of his legislative duties is not covered by the privilege, by the speech or debate privilege. So if members of Congress ask an unsworn witness to lie or break the law by leaking private tax information, then that activity would not be protected by the speech or debate clause. And and while the Republicans may have thought they were being tricky by not administering an oath to these whistleblowers, they were unsworn, that doesn't fucking matter. It is a crime to lie to Congress regardless of whether an oath is administered. Though I imagine... The questions and answers were carefully crafted to fall outside, just outside the purview of Title 18 U.S. Code Section 1001 charges. Probably not enough. Remember remember when Sessions was, I did not have any contact with the Russians. I didn't meet with the Russians. And he fucking did at the Mayflower. And it's we know it. But that wasn't considered a chargeable lie. Because in his mind at the time, he was answering a question about did I have any scheduled meetings, official meetings with the Russians? There's 1,001 charges are really tough. You got to be Mike Flynn or Roger Stone to get 1,001 charges or Donald Trump. There's a couple of 1,001 charges against Trump and Nauda in the documents case. So I would like a Senate investigation with criminal referrals potentially made to the Department of Justice. Can we get on that? That'd be great. All right. Speaking of Hunter Biden and Republican conspiracy theories, I've been talking about the possible fabrication, probable fabrication and tampering of emails on the infamous Biden laptop, the Hunter Biden laptop for a long time now, citing an old investigation into the metadata of some of the information showing that attachments to emails on those hard drives were created in Europe in 2019, six months after the laptop was purportedly abandoned at the Mac shop in Delaware. And right at the time, in the week that Rudy was over there visiting Furtosh with his fraud guarantee pals. That whole crew. And that's where more bullshit the House Republicans are crying about came from, including that FBI Form 1023 they were all hemming and hawing about. And they had to go view it in a skiff. And they're like, oh, my God, we have an informant and there's tapes, but he could be dead. And there was somebody named One Eye. And, you know, that whole... (laughs) just fakakta shit show about the 1023. And then it turned out it was a tip from Rudy to the FBI that the Trump administration decided was worthless because it came from information from Milochevsky, who has now said on tape, we had their tapes, Raskin has tapes saying, I never fucking talk to the vice president, Biden, at the time. I never, nothing, no, there were no bribes. No, there was no cash exchanging hands. We didn't even have any contact. The whole thing fell through the floor, much like everything the Republicans investigate. Anyhow, back to the validity of the Hunter Biden material. Uh, We know Hunter has been thinking about suing 
Well, today we learned former rep Denver Riggleman of Virginia, who served as a senior technical advisor to the House Select Committee investigating January 6th, is working now with the legal team advising Hunter Biden. Riggleman's work with Hunter Biden is focused on assessing data issues. And he has assisted Biden's lawyers as they contend with congressional inquiries and evaluate GOP claims made about his conduct. That's according to three people with familiar. Uh, Riggleman's work with Hunter Biden was confirmed on Tuesday by Kevin Morris, a lawyer and confidant of the president's son. Quote, Denver has been assisting us with data analysis since last year, he said to CBS News. He is an invaluable resource. We have made tremendous strides in untangling the massive amount of corruption and disinformation involved in this story. There will be much more coming to the public. What I see happening is this whole story being put together about the laptop from a data and fact point of view. And I am, I firmly believe that there are authentic emails on those hard drives that were stolen and hacked from Hunter Biden. And then there are fabricated emails that are uploaded that will have metadata that shows they were uploaded over in Vienna where Fertosh was meeting with Fruman, Parnas, Rudy Giuliani, Derkoch, and Sorkin. That's what I think. And that all of that was uploaded onto a laptop by Rudy and left at the Mac store. That's what I think. Anyway, they say a lot more will be coming out. And Riggleman said in a statement Tuesday, he and his associates are working with Hunter Biden's attorneys. I and my forensics data and telephony team are conducting data investigations and analysis for Hunter Biden's legal team. That's what he said. With a concentration on data across the spectrum, Riggleman's efforts have brought him into Hunter Biden's circle, and he's also provided the president's son with insights into House Republicans and their methods. Because he's a former House Republican, Mr. Riggleman. On Monday, they said Riggleman was at the Four Seasons in D.C. for a meeting with Hunter Biden's lawyers. I need to stop by the just Four Seasons restaurants and just hang out and see who fucking meets there. Seems to be the place. I mean, if you can book it, right? Otherwise, you end up at Four Seasons Total Landscaping. Tuesday evening, he was at the White House as one of the former members of the Hunter Biden team invited to celebrate the July 4th holiday. For Hunter Biden, the coming months could be a critical period. Although a plea agreement with federal investigators was announced last month on tax fraud and gun possession charges, congressional Republicans, as I said, have expressed outrage about the deal, vowing to move forward with their own investigations separate from the five-year-long criminal investigation conducted by a very powerful, super-independent Trump appointee. You're going to do better. Who are you going to make criminal referrals to? Fucking idiots. Riggleman's work with Hunter Biden's team has included reviewing Republicans' claims related to a laptop that the lawyer for a Delaware computer repair shop owner says was left by Hunter Biden in 2019, which was later provided to the FBI under subpoena. CBS News last year was provided a copy of those data by the lawyer for the repair shop and conducted an independent analysis led by two cyber investigators from Minneapolis-based computer forensic services. Riggleman spent months Those with knowledge said, providing digital forensics analysis for the Biden legal team on whether any data linked to Hunter Biden, such as text messages, has been distorted or fabricated. And we know in this Abby Lowell letter, he says that that screenshot you've been seeing from a WhatsApp message from Hunter Biden, I'm here with the big guy, he's sitting right next to me, we're going to do this. 
with the Bublowski is is the person he was sending the message to. We've learned that's fake. And, and and Abby Lowell says that in the letter. The picture, first of all, is from 2022 at the Easter egg roll at the White House. The text is blue if and it's WhatsApp, it should be green. So this is fabricated. And Abby Lowell, I'm wondering if he learned that from Riggleman and what else he knows. Because he has also said in that letter to House Republicans, particularly House Ways and Means Committee, that that chain of custody for the laptop is fucked and that a lot of it is fabricated. So I'm, I, I can't wait to know what they know. I think there'll be a lawsuit and I think it will all come out in the complaint. Next up from Kyle Cheney at Politico, the man arrested last week for breaching the Capitol on January 6th drove a van full of weapons to Barack Obama's neighborhood before his June 30th arrest, appearing to target the former president's home after truth social posts from Donald Trump revealed Obama's address. This is Taylor Taranto. He was arrested June 29th after a foot pursuit near Rock Creek Parkway that capped a week-long period in which his erratic and menacing behavior escalated the urgency from law enforcement to find him and capture him. It was only after he entered Obama's Secret Service-protected neighborhood that officials were able to track his movements closely. Taranto, speaking on a live stream, discussed finding an entrance to the Obama home via the sewer. In the days prior to his arrest, Taranto had broadcast threats to blow up the National Institute of Standards and Technology. Warned Speaker Kevin McCarthy he can't stop what's coming and entered an elementary school near the Maryland home of Rep. Raskin while live-streaming apparent threats to the Democratic congressman. The filing paints a remarkable picture of a man addled by conspiracy theories who acted so erratically he was banished from a protest site organized by supporters of other January 6th defendants who had access to an arsenal of weapons prior to his arrest. Prosecutors say Taranto had two firearms in his van, a Smith & Wesson M&P shield and a Seska 9mm CZ Scorpion E3. Am I saying that right? Seska? Keska? I don't know. I have a Glock. But another 18 guns registered in his name have not yet been recovered. 18 more guns. The fuck? A June 30th search of the van uncovered hundreds of rounds of 9mm ammunition, a steering wheel lock, and a machete. In addition, prosecutors worry that Taranto had outside help covering his tracks. Quote, since his arrest, at least two of his social media accounts appear to have either deleted information or been deleted entirely. It is unknown at this time who is deleting these accounts, but there is a concern that if released, Taranto will continue to attempt to destroy evidence, unquote. At a detention hearing in federal court Wednesday, where Taranto appeared in a jumpsuit, orange, his defense attorney, Catherine Guevara, called the government's case hyperbole built around out-of-context statements that were First Amendment-protected speech, not actual threats. She noted that Taranto, a military veteran, had been receiving regular therapy for PTSD and has no criminal history. Fuck you, number one. And number two, fuck you also. Uh, Magistrate Judge Zia Faruqi appeared vexed over the case for a more technical reason. Taranto's only charged with four misdemeanors stemming from the Capitol attack. And under those circumstances, he said, federal law may only permit him to detain Taranto if he views him as a flight risk. But Faruqi says he's not particularly worried about Taranto being a flight risk, but rather for the danger he poses to the community. But he doesn't have any charges here. Compounding the challenge, prosecutors say the investigation remains active and urgent, with new details being briefed to the Justice Department. 
even up to the minute. And in fact, minutes before the hearing. If Taranto is charged for conduct pertaining to his actions in recent weeks, that could change the calculus, but he hasn't been charged yet. Faruqi made no decision on Taranto's pretrial detention yesterday, but will continue the hearing today. On Thursday, Taranto's wife was present in the courtroom and was prepared to testify about arrangements she would make at her home if Taranto were released on pretrial conditions. Hurry up, charge him. I mean, you know, find evidence, do it right. Next up from Jones at NBC, the GOP's war on racially diverse college campuses was never going to be confined to the party's war on affirmative action. In fact, Republican efforts to ban diversity, equity, and inclusion programs on college campuses, curb free speech around progressive causes, and restrict classroom discussions on social inequality all limit higher education from becoming more amenable to students, particularly non-white students. And now it appears Republicans are setting their sights on another tool used to foster campus diversity, minority scholarship programs. On Thursday, the Republican Speaker of the Wisconsin State Assembly suggested he'll move to ban grants designed for minority undergraduate students. Mm-hmm. Ban them. The Speaker, Robin Voss, responded to a tweet claiming a minority scholarship program designated for students who are Black, Indigenous, Hispanic, or of Laotian, Vietnamese, or Cambodian descent is discriminatory. In his response, Voss, who's under criminal federal investigation, by the way, seemed to embody the conservative fervor to block racial minority groups from higher education. His tweet came just hours after conservatives on the Supreme Court gutted affirmative action policies and college admissions, showing his eagerness to end minority scholarship programs. He was champing at the fucking bit, waiting for this. And he later retweeted a user who claimed Ivy League schools hate rural whites suggesting his apparent push to end minority scholarship is thinly veiled white. Uh, it's, uh, this guy is such a piece of shit. Uh, he's also been a vocal opponent of diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts, DEI, referring to programs within the University of Wisconsin as indoctrination, despite a racist incident at the Madison campus making headlines in the spring. Although Wisconsin is operating with a projected $7 billion budget surplus, Voss and Republicans in the state legislature voted to cut $32 million from the UW system's budget, unless it agrees to use the funds for workforce development instead of DEI efforts. The GOP planned to seek to cut nearly 200 DEI jobs on UW campuses. Last week's Supreme Court ruling gave conservatives the go-ahead to hack away at campus integration and diversification plans, and there's no question many of them are happy to do just that. It's going to keep happening since this decision came down. In some better news, groups that support reproductive rights submitted more than 700,000 signatures to put an amendment guaranteeing access to abortion in Ohio before voters this November in 2024. That's 70% more than they need to make the ballot. 70% more. Ohioans United for Reproductive Rights backed up a U-Haul at the Secretary of State's office on Wednesday to turn in their petitions. That group includes activists from abortion rights organizations, physicians, the ACLU of Ohio, Democratic groups, and labor unions. They've been working since March to reach the goal of 414,000 signatures. Far more than that were submitted to ensure enough valid signatures were gathered. The groups did preliminary validation of signatures when they collected the petitions last weekend. The total number of signatures submitted is 710,131, 
But it's not a record. In 2011, opponents of a law that made major changes in collective bargaining for police officers, teachers, and other public employees, they got 1.3 million signatures. That law, to repeal it, known as Senate Bill 5, was overwhelmingly overturned by voters that year. But before the vote on their issue in November, the coalition is battling an amendment on the August special election ballot that would make it harder to pass future amendments. Issue one would raise the threshold for passage from a simple majority to 60 percent, making it nearly impossible for ballot measures to pass. And if voters pass that August amendment, it would also make it harder to pass all constitutional amendments going forward by also requiring changes in the petition gathering rules beginning in 2024. Opponents of the abortion rights amendment were ready with their response, which zeroes in on language in the amendment. They say attacks parental rights in abortion and gender transition, though the amendment doesn't address parents' rights regarding those issues. Protect Women Ohio issued a statement that reads in part, the ACLU's extreme anti-parent amendment is so unpopular that it couldn't even rely on a grassroots support to collect signatures. The ACLU paid out-of-state signature collectors to lie to Ohioans about its dangerous amendment that will strip parents of their rights, permit minors to undergo sex change operations without their parents' knowledge or consent, and allow painful abortion on demand through all nine months? No. The ACLU's attempt to hijack Ohio's constitution to further its own radical agenda would be pathetic if it weren't so dangerous. Like, that's Seriously, their statement. So, good job, Ohio. And Yusuf Salam, one of the exonerated Central Park Five, has won his Democratic primary for a seat on the New York City Council, all but assures him the eventual victory. It's an improbable feat for a political novice who was wrongly accused and convicted and imprisoned as a teenager for the rape and beating of a white jogger in Central Park. But here he is. The Associated Press refrained from calling the race on election night, but vote tallies released Wednesday showed him to be the clear winner to represent central Harlem. Salam is not expected to face a serious challenge in November general election, if any. It is time, he said, for a new Harlem renaissance. Quote, to have a voice from a person who's been pushed into the margins of life, someone who has actually been one of those who has been counted out, is finally having a seat at the table, Salam said in an interview Wednesday. Harlem is such a special place that it is known as the Black Mecca. What happens in Harlem reverberates around the world. Salam and the four other Black and Latino teens from Harlem became known as the Central Park Five after their arrest in 1989 in the headline-grabbing rape, one of the city's most notorious and racially fraught crimes. He served nearly seven years in prison before the group was exonerated through DNA evidence. Donald Trump who in 1989 placed full-page ads in four newspapers before the group went on trial, headlining Bring Back the Death Penalty, later refused to apologize, saying all five had pled guilty. A reference to their very coerced confessions. Salam reminded voters of that in April, putting his own full-page ad, headlining Bring Back Justice and Fairness, in response to Trump's indictments. On that note... I will be right back with Wesley Lowry. We're going to discuss his new book, American White Lash, A Changing Nation and the Cost of Progress. You don't want to miss it. Stick around. We'll be right back. After these messages, we'll be right back. Hey, everybody, it's AG, and I want to check in with y'all about Netroots Nation. You might remember I mentioned last month I'm excited to be going to Chicago July 13th through the 15th for Netroots Nation. This is the largest gathering of progressive activists in the country. It happens every year in a different place, and this year it's in the fantastic city of Chicago, one of my favorite places, and you should come too. Netroots Nation is 
part learning about issues, part skills building, part rallying the folks who do the work, and part fun. Some people come for their jobs. Lots of people come because they just care a lot about what citizens can contribute to politics. For everybody there, it's eye-opening, inspiring, and a chance to connect. The organizers just announced the agenda of training sessions to help you be more effective in the activism you do. You should check it out. It's at the Netroots Nation website, which is netrootsnation.org. There's one on relational organizing that I think might appeal to Beans listeners. You know, vote blue and take someone with you. Sound familiar? There'll be broadcasters and podcasters set up at Media Row, where I'll be, and at the convention, and maybe we'll run into each other there. I'll probably be doing some interviews with folks that I meet. I know it'll be great. I'll update you on planning for Netroots as we get closer, including info about keynote speakers. And remember, Netsroot Nation organizers have given us a discount code. Just enter promo code DAILYBEANS, all one word, to get 10% off the price of your ticket. They've got a discounted hotel block, too, so go to netrootsnation.org and register so that we know you're coming. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Happy to be joined today to discuss how a series of events led to an increase in white racist aggression, especially in the post-President Obama era. We're going to be talking with the Pulitzer Prize winner and author of the new book available now wherever you get your books. It's called American White Lash, A Changing Nation and the Cost of Progress. Please welcome Wesley Lowry. Hi, Mr. Lowry. How are you? I'm doing well. It's Wesley. It's Wesley. I'm doing well. I know. I'm like, is it doctor? Is it uh, Mr. Pulitzer Prize winner? Mr. Lowry. No, that's my dad. That's my dad. <laughs> anyway, I'm so happy to talk to you today. You know, I chewed through this book and I have to say I'm so glad everybody, all these amazing books that I've read about backsliding into white supremacy cover reconstruction up until 2016. And, uh, you know, and you're very aptly focused on more recent events. And I think that that really fills an information gap. I think it increases the body of knowledge. And I wanted to talk to you about it today. What prompted you to, to write this book? Well, I think that for me, as a reporter who covered issues of race and justice, as Donald Trump took office and we saw the kind of empowerment and, embold and emboldenment of this white supremacist movement, right? And I mean, actual avowed racist, right? Um, and they're in the streets, they're doing Nazi salutes, they're holding homicidal rallies in Charlottesville. I, I saw a need to try to, just as a journalist, I saw a need to document what had happened, to tell the stories of the people who had lost their lives, but then also to try to place it in some type of context. And it was impossible to understand what was happening in 2017, 18, 19, without understanding what had happened before that, without understanding the response and the reaction to the Black presidency. And you can't understand that without understanding both this era of multiracial democracy since the 60s and our long history of in moments where we take steps towards multiracial democracy in a multicultural society, there being a violent backlash to it. Yeah. And I wanted to bring up the the point that um, a lot of scholars and, and academics have, have brought up that it's this kind of white supremacy, this white racist aggression that became, you know, prevalent post Obama, but was given a megaphone by Donald Trump who made it OK to be openly racist again, make make being racist great again, I think was kind of uh, what we what we saw happening, especially, you know, since Charlottesville. Uh, well, since he since he came down the golden escalator, I mean, the dude's been this way since, you know, we just had one of the exonerated Central Park Five 
win his primary to be city council member. Yes. And, and Trump has been doing this just since way back in the day when he took out that full page ad. But you tie it into the entire history of backsliding into white supremacy. And I think that that's really important. But also you talk about what these academics have found to be the driving factor, the animus behind January 6th. A lot of these, most of these rioters and seditionists don't come from red rural areas. They come from purple districts who are who fear the great replacement. Uh, and, and so talk a little bit about how that ties into to Obama's presidency specifically and what Donald did to sort of amplify it, to light the fuse. Sure. I mean, as you know, there's nothing new under the sun. And we have a long, rich history in our country of having these moments where political movements rise to oppose steps towards multiculturalism. Uh, uh, urbanization, technological advances, and the advancement of more multiracial democracy. What we saw, though, was Donald Trump being willing to play to it and play to it explicitly. Now, we can't separate this from the conversation about immigration, something that is racialized in our, pol- in our political uh, conversation, that in these years, we're seeing a demographic change that is happening due to the immigration of Hispanic Americans from Central and South America. And Donald Trump, plays to this this kind of nativist frustration that you're, if you are a white American, that you once occupied a world that was built for you, but now you're getting killed by Islamic terrorists and Hispanics are coming over the border to steal your jobs and a black guy with a funny name who isn't even a real American gets to be the president. And he plays to all of these things that and finds that they help build a significant constituency of people who feel aggrieved, who feel like the country has changed and has left them as the losers of history. You know, by the end of the Obama administration, 55% of white Americans, one poll found, believed that they were racially discriminated against, right? So the majority, so white Americans believe they were an oppressed racial group by the end of one black president, mm-hmm. right? And, and so, what happens when you have a group of people, an extremely powerful group of people, the majority of people who feel that way? You see the rise of politicians willing to stoke that and play with that to take political power, to get their other goals. And unfortunately, when that type of animus is stoked, it results in violent treatment towards, uh, towards the people who are being dehumanized, towards immigrants, towards Muslims, towards Jewish Americans, towards Black Americans. Yeah, and, and the, the group of white Americans who feel that they are the oppressed race somehow uh, in this country, I mean, that goes back, we have such a long history of the backlash against a multiracial democracy. But it has led to voter suppression laws that target Black communities. It has led to the recent Supreme Court decision uh, gutting affirmative action to, to ensure we have diversity at major universities. I'm glad to see that that um, some some civil rights groups are pushing back, filing civil rights complaints against legacy admissions, for example. Mm-hmm. But this long history of weaponizing other minority groups against black voters and black citizens, like right or or other marginalized groups. Right now, they're trying. The, the Republicans are trying to uh, weaponize Muslims against the transgender community. We've had a history, and especially in the affirmative action case of the Republicans weaponizing the AAPI community against the black community. And talk for a minute about 
your first of all, your thoughts on the on this SCOTUS decision? I mean, there were two that that targeted marginalized communities that that push back against a multiracial and diverse democracy with the affirmative action and the the ruling against the LGBTQ plus community. Speak a little bit about that. I mean, because all of what you talk about in this book is what has led to these types of voter suppression laws and Supreme Court decisions. Sure. That that I think that there was a there's a sense of when a system that was constructed initially to favor one group of people is being deconstructed, the people who benefited initially will always both fight back and attempt to reconstruct it the way it once was. Beyond that, as you noted, we deal with in our democracy, the perception of individuals is very important. So when people perceive that their way of life is under threat... Right, rugged individualism, right? It both objectively matters that it is not under threat, and also in terms of as a functioning, governing society does matter, right? Because it doesn't actually matter if the election was stolen from Donald Trump. If enough people believe it was, they will storm the Capitol and try to overthrow democracy, right? And and so there is this balancing act between being grounded and rooted in objective fact and also understanding that our fellow citizens are not always rational actors who can be swayed by objective fact, right? And so what do you do with that? And how do you navigate it? Um, I think it's really complicated. I think it's really difficult. Uh, but what we've seen is that at a local level, over and over and over again, through policies, through decision-making, through local government, that attempts at an integrated society almost always lead to this type of thrashing. The historian Carol Anderson writes an excellent book uh, called White Rage, mm-hmm. where she looks at all the different ways through policy and through violence that white Americans resisted integration and, and full citizenship for, for black Americans, right? And, and so you then, then partner that with this violent white lash in which these white supremacist groups in these moments when white Americans are so aggrieved seize upon those people to promote actualized violence, right? That both happen at the same time. But you have a Supreme Court decision at the same time that you have people who are actively trying to stoke and provoke a race war, or actively trying to get rid of birthright citizenship, or right, put down access to social services right, for people of color. And so we see this push and pull in these balancing acts. And um, talk also a little bit about, you know, there was a really important uh, aspect here that you write about, where our resources shifted from a post-9-11 focus on international terrorists to domestic threats. I've spoken to Andy McCabe about this, former acting director of the FBI, uh, fired by Donald Trump an hour before he was supposed to get his pension. But, you know, he talks about uh, post 9-11 resources, taking all the money away from investigating white collar crime and putting it into foreign terrorism and anti-terrorism. And now we're sort of shifting. We've seen a little bit of, of those resources go back to investigating domestic terror threats. And, and we've seen the reports from the FBI. It's the number one threat to the United States right now is white supremacy mm-hmm. and, and domestic violent extremism, which is, which is let's be fair, all rooted in white supremacy and this great replacement theory. So talk, talk a little bit about that shifting resources that, and how it impacted what we do. Well, think about it. Prior to 9-11, the deadliest terror attack in American history had been the Oklahoma City bombing committed by Timothy McVeigh, an avowed white supremacist. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, and so up until 9-11, you, you, we would have imagined that a top priority of domestic law enforcement would have been combating and dismantling, uh, far right movements. Now, 
what is true, though, is that some of the failings and attempts to do this ended up handcuffing our law enforcement, right? So we see the disasters at Waco. We see the disaster at Ruby Ridge. We see these moments where law enforcement screws up in its attempts to deal with far-right political figures in ways that then only stoke more recruitment, more frustration. And, and so the FBI, in some senses, pulls back a little bit um, and, and doesn't have its foot on the gas in the same way. 9-11 occurs. Um, obviously, you, you know, an unspeakable tragedy that will forever change you know, the course of American history in which we create a massive new bureaucracy in the Department of, Department of Homeland Security to spend un, uncounted billions of dollars on principally addressing Islamic terrorism overseas. We, we launched two wars um, to address this issue. Yet throughout all of this, you know, I interviewed for the book both of the first two secretaries of Homeland Security, both of whom concede to me that, yeah, that's what we were focused on. We weren't focused on, uh, in the same way, on white supremacist, homegrown terrorism. We were all thinking about international terrorism that meant Islamic terrorists almost exclusively. And, and what we see is that that focus continues even as we elect a black president and move into this new era, that the focus of federal law enforcement remained first and foremost international terrorism, even as our country was going through what would be predictably a, a moment that would spur backlash to this type of uh, to this type of advancement, right? That that what we see when our country takes other historical steps like this, following emancipation and reconstruction, is we see murderous vigilantes impose like a white supremacist system across the country. State houses get bombed. And, like, like, we, what we see following the, the Civil Rights Acts and the Voting Rights Acts and, and following the activism that leads to them, uh, including the Brown versus Board of Education decisions, we see waves of lynchings across the South. And yet we believe the posture of our, of our, our federal law enforcement was that we were going to elect the black guy to be the president and that our primary concern still needed to be international terrorists. Right. And so what we see in these years is this clear rise, this clear uptick, all these other things that factor into it. We are in a, it's hard to remember the beginning of the Obama administration. Now we're in a recession, an economic downturn. We had these returning soldiers coming back, many of them having been not necessarily radicalized in white supremacy, but certainly based in a more conservative media ecosystem that now was going to, to become something that fed them into these, into these places. And so in many ways, a lot of what happened was predictable. And we just failed to do anything about it. Yeah. And we see that pullback again, um, particularly in the FBI. I mean, th th there's a history of cyclical blaming of the black community for violence so that they can refocus their energy on taking down and dismantling the black communities, successive black communities. We saw it in Tulsa. And then they come back and they protest. And now with for January 6th, the reason they didn't want to send out the National Guard and the reason they tiptoed and pussyfooted around the January 6th rioters was because they said the optics were bad, so bad for them with what happened with the Black Lives Matter protests and George Floyd that they just didn't want to, you know, they're a little gun shy now. Uh, and, and it's always that way. And it can't be on accident. Do you know what I mean? Of course. Well, and there's a there's always a reactionary backlash. Right, the sense of have things gone too far? Have in fact the the tables turned, and, and as now the and, and history tells us that no, 
the tables have not turned. This <laughs> is still, you know, and so we see that play out time and time and time again. Um, it, it's, it, yeah, we're seeing it now in, in response to uh, the mobilization around George Floyd's death in 2020, the steps that were taken um, following that, as well as a lot of the societal changes of our era. We're now seeing a moderate institutional backlash mm-hmm. to it. This idea of did it all go too far and what are we going to do and 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 a, a punching left and, and, and running right uh, from our institutions that on any number of these issues, we know one plays into these forces, but secondarily comes from the fact that it's not just Republicans and conservatives who are feeling these anxieties. 55% of all white people believe that they're an oppressed racialized group. Right, no matter what their partisan identification is, and so I think that that, um, and so it's unsurprising that in a world in which we still have a white majority and institutions, um, especially professional institutions, still run predominantly uh, by white Americans, that in a moment where white America is experiencing a backlash, that institutions run and controlled at large by white America would also participate in that backlash. Yeah, but, but Trump's megaphone makes it a little bit different, right? Because, I mean, the, the, the backlash Certainly. is eased a little bit with the Biden administration, but under the Trump administration, he's like, these are anarchic jurisdictions. We're going to roll up in unmarked vans and take you away for, for protesting the death of George Floyd. We're going you know, to declare this a jurisdiction that allows us to do this weird unmarked policing and violent backlash to your peaceful protest. I mean, it's just it was it was so out front and ridiculous. Before I let you go, because we were getting a little bit short on time here, and I know you're uh, you have a very, very busy schedule, but I wanted to talk for a second about what we can do. Mm-hmm. There's an urgent call for change in action. What can we do as as voters to help our leaders enact meaningful change? Can you expand on that a little? Sure. I mean, I think first and foremost, and this sounds like a cop out sometimes when you say it, but I think first and foremost we have to be informed about our own history. <laughs> We, we've never enc- we're never encountering anything that people before us have not encountered before and have not left us breadcrumbs and lessons learned and suggestions and guidance for how to steal ourselves in moments like this, but also about what to do in moments like this, right? There's a, there's a hubris or a narcissism in believing that like our time is special in any way. Um, and in fact, we've been through this before. Um, and, and so I think that for me right now, a lot of that is reading about the 1920s in particular, the rise of the Klan during those years, the, the reactionary movement that followed. Um, and there's been a lot of good writing uh, that has come out around that. I think secondarily, I think that we have to be willing to use that knowledge once we have it, to name things what they are and call them for what they are. I think that's important. Uh, but then beyond that, I think we have to expect that and demand that of our leaders and our leadership as well. Right. The one thing that we know, and we're seeing this play out, right? Well, one thing we know is in our democracy, the way it's set up is that it actually doesn't take very many people to be particularly motivated about something to change things for an entire country. Right. We've seen so much play out in school boards around, around various issues over these last few years. And the reality is it's probably one to 5% of Americans who've participated in this at all mm-hmm. in terms of actually showing up, being at the meetings, right? But it has implications for the entire country. So when, you th- when we think about issues on which we believe that there is a broad consensus or we believe that there is a clear right and wrong, it doesn't take that many people being motivated and showing up 
to to move the needle on those things in a national sense. And so I think that that's important. I also think what's hard and what we have to remember is that these are things that take long periods of time and, and, and nothing nothing does happen quickly. But I think we do have a responsibility to know what our values are and to actively and proactively try to live those values in terms of how we participate in our democracy. Yeah, and I agree. And I would add, don't think you're immune to the ignorance, the lack of understanding of history. I grew up, but went to very good schools. I didn't learn about the Tulsa massacre until the whole thing happened with Trump having his rally on the anniversary of it in Tulsa. That's when I first learned about it. I was taught in school that the Civil War was fought over states' rights. I was taught in school that the Irish were just as oppressed as uh, anybody else. I, I, you know, and and it wasn't until recently reading. Uh, books like yours, like Ellie Mastal's, like The Reckoning, Mary Trump, like all these books that I'm, I've been, uh, you know, getting into understanding the slide back into white supremacy, going all the way back to Reconstruction and, and earlier, the, the 1619 Project. It wasn't until I started actively, proactively myself learning this history that I understood the mm, at the, the Supreme Court rulings, the the impact that it has today on on marginalized communities. So I, I really encourage you to to get out of your own head and, and know that there are things that you don't know and how important it is to look at this history and stand up for this history at your local school boards and your uh, local city councils. I think that that's a, a good place to start too. Of course. Well, we never stop learning. And I think that we have to remember, it's not something we have to feel ashamed or embarrassed about, that so much of this history was actively hidden from us, mm-hmm. that we were actively lied to about so much of it, right? And that History is a participatory process where we are still discovering what the truth of America is, right? Because there are things we are literally still unearthing and still uncovering. And, and the way we do that and how we do that is through the, through these processes. And so, you know, for me, you know, one of the things I love about being a journalist is I get to learn every day. I get to talk to people smarter than me. I get to listen to them. I get to read books and call it work, right? Same. And so I think for all of us, to be engaged in our democracy and engaged in the understanding and the knowledge of the history of our democracy um, and, and in public history in this way, I think that it requires us to enter these conversations knowing and understanding that there's so much we don't know mm-hmm. and that our job today is to learn something we didn't know when we woke up. Yep. And to get an even deeper understanding, learn it, read it, and then teach it to somebody else, um, whether it's a member of your family or a friend. Uh, I think it sticks better that way. And it, it really helps you understand what you're saying and what you're uh, receiving and thinking. The book is out now. It's called American White Lash, A Changing Nation and the Cost of Progress. Thank you so much for taking time with us today. Wesley Lowry. Of course. Thanks for having me. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back with the good news. Everybody, welcome back. It's time for the good news. Good news, good news. And if you have good news, confessions, corrections, you want to play what the mutt, what the heck wine, I want to hear shout out, uh, shout outs, shouts out, <laughs> shout outs to yourselves, uh, your loved ones, your kids, your spouse, your partner, local business in your area, adoptable pet in your area. Send all that in to me at dailybeanspod.com and click on contact. First up, a correction. Paige, thanks for the Ohio shout out for a super special election. The date is August 8th. Dana accidentally said September. Please remind my fellow Ohioans, you must be registered by July 10th to vote in the special election. Sometimes 
Ohio can feel pretty helpless with our illegal maps and corrupt representatives. So here's our chance to keep the power to the people. Now to be sweet again, please. The great news, 710,131 signatures were submitted to the Ohio Secretary of State to get reproductive freedom up for a vote in November. Thanks to the volunteers outside of Trader Joe's for adding my name to the list. Paige, thank you. And I did cover that. Yay. Next up, Janine, pronouns she and her. Hello, I'm a new listener. You asked about concerts. I have two in August that I'm really looking forward to. I'm going to Chicago to see Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band at Wrigley. Very cool. This will be shows 37 and 38 for me, but my first time in Chicago. Wow, Janine. Can't wait. After Chicago, something really important. My husband and I will head to Portland to see our son Alex get married. When Alex was two, he was diagnosed with leukemia and underwent almost three years of chemotherapy. He just turned 29. And to say he is our miracle is an understatement. I meant to include a picture of Alex, his fiance, and my grandpuppy Maisie May on the day they got engaged at Cannon Beach on the Oregon coast, but that didn't work for some reason. I've started telling people blue, not Q. So thanks for that. Janine, congratulations on both counts. That's so what such amazing news. Next up from anonymous pronouns, he and him. Good afternoon, Beans Crew. Shout out to myself for riding my bike 100 miles over a little 4th of July vacation. Thanks for continuing to deliver the news and mentioning Ohio's August 8th special election. I thought you and the rest of the listeners might want to know why Ohio's August 8th special is so important while simultaneously being so stupid. We have one statewide issue to vote on, and that's to make a 60% threshold to pass state constitutional amendments. You know they're doing that. Anonymous. They're doing that so that when abortion's on the ballot in 2024, that's just going to make more people show up. They're so fucking dumb. Aside from obviously eliminating a majority rule, and making it nearly impossible to amend the Constitution, we do not have ballot initiatives here like in California. Our only ungerrymandered means of a check on the state house's power is through the Constitution. Making the threshold 60% effectively means that only the state house can modify any kind of policy. Since our House and Senate are both gerrymandered all to hell, I don't have to tell you what kinds of policies they're proposing. The reason August 8th is so stupid, though, is that they're illegal. In the previous legislative session, that is, barely a year ago, these morons in Columbus did one good thing. They made August special elections illegal. Cities, townships, school boards, etc. can't hold an August special anymore because they have historically the lowest turnout of any election. They were basically used to sweep stuff under the rug. However, the legislature immediately turned around and gave themselves a one-time exception to that law so they could sweep this under the rug. And that's because a citizen-led constitutional amendment will likely be on the November ballot to enshrine reproductive choice in Ohio's constitution. What a bunch of dicks. Back to the importance. August specials are historically very weak turnout, which will make this August special a turnout-driven outcome. We have to show up and vote no on issue one. Issue one is pretty unpopular in polling, but if we don't show up, it'll get swept right in and take effect immediately three months before November's election. July 10th, again, is your registration deadline. Check your registration at the Ohio Secretary of State's website. Even if you vote consistently, there's constant purging of voter rolls going on. Make sure your registration wasn't one of them. You have to be registered by July 10th to vote in the August special. They're going to purge you. You know they are. They're going to do everything they can to make a 60% threshold a reality. 
Pet Tax, our main coon Tilly, who left us a year ago, July 3rd, 2022, uh, doing his favorite activity, batting at birds on the screen from a YouTube bird feeder cam. <laughs> Hi, baby. Hi, sweetie. Thanks for that. That's really important information. All right, next up, Claire, one of two fabulous thespians from North Dakota, pronouns she and her. My niece runs a Facebook page for the educational arm of the North Dakota Game and Fish Department. She is STEAM, Science, Technology, Engineering, Arts, and Math educator. She educates kids in schools with her traveling trunks of goodies, as well as teachers' professional development. The Facebook page is in addition to her real job as the traveling educator. Today, she posted this pic of a toadlet on the Facebook page. Sorry, not a frog orgy, but the results of a toad orgy? I don't like amphibians or reptiles, but this little teenage toad is pretty cute. Their page could always have a few more followers. Go follow Habitats of North Dakota. Look at the toadlet. Yes, toadlet. Teenage toads are very everywhere. Toads are amphibians that lay eggs, etc. Yeah, uh, we used to have them all over. When I grew up in Ohio, we were we were situated about 10 saltbox colonials around a little lake that would freeze solid in the winter. We would go ice skating on. Big kids would play hockey. During the summer, there were blackberry bushes all around. They're very thorny, but we just used to pick these huge blackberries and raspberries. Uh, we had just giant lilac bushes, which are woody bushes, which but they're so beautiful. They smell amazing. You can smell them like from a mile away. But in these little, you know, because you have basements and then you have windows, basement windows, but they're below ground. So you have to dig out these little holes where the windows are. And in those little holes, hundreds of these little toadlets, you just pick up handfuls of them and they jump everywhere. Never forget that. Thank you for that memory. Next up, anonymous, she and her. In the upside down world we live in right now, I'm thankful for year old Lucy and her brother from another mother, Ziggy. We all love each other. They remind me love still abounds in the world and all three of us love your show. Look at these beauties. (gasps) The blue is so, oh, and the torty. Hi, Lucy and Ziggy. And Lucy's the tortie and Ziggy has the man cat face. Uh, Next up from Ben in Los Angeles, he and him. Hello, Beans Queens. I'm a recent regular listener and I've discovered you guys while searching for cool shit to listen to at my library job. I just got hired for my first ever legit full-time job at the LA County Courthouse. So I hope I'm a MAGA's worst nightmare, a progressive working in government. Gasp. (laughs) Quick question. Why is it that virtually nobody talks about how unreliable polls are in 2023? Like probably more unreliable than ever. Think about it. The only people answering polls these days are people with a landline or people that will take an unsolicited call from a number they don't recognize on their cell phone. Seems to me that not one single Gen Z person would fit into that category. Anywho, as pod pet tax, I've included a photo of our buddies, two-year-old Simone and 10-year-old T-Bone. Keep doing what you do. P.S. The Bay City Rollers are from Scotland. (laughs) Yeah, I know. They just threw a dart at a map and that's what they got, how they got their name. Uh, But, you know, we've brought this up multiple times. It's why there was, everybody was shocked when there was no red wave in, in, in 2022. It's why everyone was shocked when there was a blue tsunami in 2018. It's why the polls were so wrong in 2016 and why the polls were also so wrong, but fortunately to our benefit in 2020. Polls have been wrong. Fuck. They're dumb. Anyway, beautiful kitty picture. Thank you. Next up, Kimberly, she and her. Hello, Allison and Dana. This is an addendum to the story you shared about the awful Erica Marsh Twitter account that harassed Allison online. Yesterday, Terry Canefield. Yes, I saw her piece, Kimberly. 
who has also been subject to awful online harassment from numerous accounts, gifted a Washington Post article on Mastodon titled a viral left wing Twitter account may have been fake all along. The Erica Marsh account shows how rage baiting remains a powerful way to win attention and score political points. Yep, I read it and tweeted about it. The investigative reporter from WAPO, Drew Harwell, who is also active on Mastodon, was not able to find any indications info that would confirm Erica Marsh was a real person. Twitter, of course, had no comment. Important reporting on fake accounts and the damage they cause, though, especially since you've been harassed by that account. So I thought I'd pass it along. Thank you, Kimberly, for the link. It'll be in the show notes. Okay. And Kimberly goes on to say, love the show. Listen daily. I've been doing so since the kitchen table days. Nice. For pet tax, I've attached a picture of our wee kiwi when she was just a two pound puppy. Oh my God. This little girl is 13 years old now. Slowing down a bit, but she's still mischievous. No need to guess her breed. She's a toy poodle. Yes, she is. She's adorable. Oh, a black toy poodle with some auburn highlights. Very nice. And from Alex, pronouns he and him. Three days will be in my head forever. August 16th, 2010. I was diagnosed with a degenerative, fatal, and completely untreatable neurological disease with a life expectancy of 35. September 14th, 2019. My 35th birthday. July 3rd, 2023, I received the first and only medication for my disease. I don't know if I would have made it to today without a group of compassionate and wonderful people like the Leguminati or their fearless leaders. Alex, thanks for that. Congratulations. Okay. (laughs) We'll be back tomorrow with Dana. Send your good news to us at dailybeanspod.com and click on contact. Until tomorrow, please take care of yourselves, take care of each other, take care of the planet, take care of your mental health. Vote blue over Q and bring everyone with you. August 8th, Ohio. Register by July 10th. I've been Allison Gill and them's the beans. The Daily Beans is written and executive produced by Allison Gill with additional research and reporting by Dana Goldberg. Sound design and editing is by Desiree McFarlane with art and web design by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. Music for the Daily Beans is written and performed by They Might Be Giants, and the show is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, please visit mswmedia.com. MSW Media. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. 
and a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is lawyers, guns, and money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.